0: This is Changemakers with Katie Gore. Finding the right solutions for the affordable housing community. Thanks for joining me for another conversation about the importance of affordable housing. Today's changemaker is Demetria Simpson. She has over 20 years of housing and development experience. Demetria also led the affordable housing redevelopment efforts on the Mississippi Gulf Coast following Hurricane Katrina. Now she's the Vice President of Development at BGC Advantage. Demetria, welcome to Changemakers.
1: Well, thank you.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started in affordable housing, for example?
1: You know, this country girl from Mississippi, I had gone back to school with one major in mind and um, I ended up in economic development in the School of Planning at the University of Southern Mississippi started interning with an engineering planning firm. That is where I started getting my experience in planning. Uh, my degree is in community and regional planning with further studies in economic development. So that, uh, with that engineering planning firm is where I really started to get that experience around working with small cities and towns in the CDBG community development block grant programs, home programs, and working with the planning and development district that worked in multiple counties uh, within the state of Mississippi. My career was headed in the direction of possibly seeing myself working with a local municipality or an engineering and planning firm somewhere, but it took a turn when we started administering the home investment partnerships program. One of my favorite places to work at the time was in the Mississippi Delta and building housing for homeowners who had been living in houses that were dilapidated. And, you know, I got a chance to see how people who lived in poverty actually lived. That's where my career took a turn because after doing so many of those projects in so many areas, rural areas especially, seeing people living the way they were without plumbing, I said to myself, I said, if I can change their life, if I can make one significant impact in in somebody's life, then I have done something great, something good within the community. And it wasn't until I got a call from one of the mayors and we were just talking and I was at the time getting ready to relocate. And he said, well, I just want to say one thing, Miss Simpson, you know, he said, you have really found your calling. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I always try to do the best I can within my job. He said, no, he said, I'm serious. You found your calling. And so I'm so glad that I heard what the mayor said at the time and it was just like something hit me is that you know this is what i'm supposed to do everybody has a purpose in life once you find your purpose what it is that you're supposed to be doing while you're here that has to be the most rewarding feeling to have and so ever since then i've been operating in my purpose and that is to help those who cannot help themselves and helping the most vulnerable, whatever that looked like. And so my career at that point just ended up going deeper and deeper into affordable housing. I think it was um, around the time where I got the call from someone from the state and said, hey, how would you like to go to work for a small housing authority on the Mississippi Gulf Coast? And I said, I have no idea what that's all about but when they told me what that job entailed as an executive director I certainly jumped at the opportunity and that is where my career
0: really took off. So having that degree and you know you're one of the unique people who actually gets to take their degree and follow that continuum and blend it with you know your purpose and your calling and you really took what that mayor said to you about, mm-hmm. you know, making sure, you know, you, um, you know, are able to, you know, use that gift and use that mm-hmm. calling. And it, you've been a pioneer here, too, um, with all of the work that you've done in a field that is not predominantly women or minority. And you have been so active in the development you know mm-hmm. not just the management and operation of it but mm-hmm. actually the development um, involved in disaster recovery in mm-hmm. fact one of the many accolades uh, that comes behind your name is that glamour magazine actually <laughs> named you. <laughs> yes they named you woman of the year and i mean this is phenomenal you talk about your pioneering efforts in this field for everything that you have done in disaster recovery and, you know, making sure that families had decent, safe and sanitary housing um, as as everybody was trying to get back on their feet um, after the Mm -hmm. the disaster that happened in Mississippi. It's not easy work. Just kind of walk us through how you broke that apart and how you were so effective to where, you know, you have national trending news (laughs) giving you accolades here. Well, you know, Katie, I didn't have a
1: roadmap of how successful I wanted to be doing what I was doing. Um, I only focused on helping as many as I could help through the work that I did. I was only at the small housing authority that I, that I was at on the Mississippi Gulf Coast for a year before Katrina hit. And that is where the entire affordable housing, in my opinion, the whole landscape changed, the way affordable housing looked, where we thought about how long it would take us to build so many affordable housing, how long it would take to do it, and how we would do it with the uh, minimal resources that we had. Hurricane Katrina came in and um, said it was just like Somebody said, "Well, I'll just make it all go away, and you can start from scratch." Yeah, and so that was where my career really took off because at the time I really did not have um, much experience with the low-income housing tax credits. It was all public housing funding, at you know, at the time. So, leveraging the resources to do mixed finance housing was just starting to take shape. And so with the disaster recovery efforts, nobody had a playbook other than the hurricane map of tracking the hurricanes and the preparedness, a simple plan for how we are to react, uh, respond to the hurricane. And so that was my opportunity to take something like an opportunity that Hurricane Katrina brought, it, although it brought devastation, it also brought opportunity. With everybody telling the housing authorities that there, the chariot was not coming, there was not a boat boatload of money coming, that was just like bells ringing in my ears to go out and really do some things that we wouldn't normally be able to do with so many uh, being in a highly regulatory environment. And so, um, you know that you cannot rebuild by yourself. And so Mm -hmm. what I saw in Mississippi was that we were able to come together and bring the expertise to the table to help us to build back the affordable housing. Among the Gulf Coast, including Louisiana and Mississippi, 98% of the housing stock was damaged or destroyed. With that in mind, we already had a gap in supplying affordable housing. And so bringing the expertise to the table, that was also my opportunity and the people that I worked with, an opportunity for us to learn how to develop affordable housing, how to provide affordable housing in a way that we haven't seen before. And using the leverage of resources that was coming into the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And so over the next several years was to me like a training ground of learning how to be better prepared for disaster recoveries through the lessons learned.
0: So when someone says to you, there's no chariot coming, you look around the table and you realize, okay, I already had a gap in housing. There was already Mm -hmm. a portion that was substandard. No chariot is obviously coming. There's no playbook how to do this. You just step back from the table and you took a go and do. Right? And you just said, I'm just going to have to do this. This is my community. I've got some community development block grants for Mm -hmm. disaster recovery, but that wasn't going to cover it all. And so you just literally pushed back from the table and said, I'm going to go and do.
1: Yes. I'm going to go and do. One of the things, the highlights was there were small public housing authorities that there was no way in that kind of devastation a small agency would survive. And so I remember going to the neighboring housing authority and talking to the executive director there. And I said, what do you think about merging? Becoming one housing authority so that we could pool our resources and provide more housing within the jurisdiction that we both served. And the first thing she said was, who's going to be the executive director? And she had been at the Housing Authority since she was 16. I envisioned her still being there, and I told her, I said, You could be the executive director. What I had in mind was to grab a hold of the coattails of the experts that came into the Mississippi Gulf Coast to show us how it's done. And that's where I ended up going to work for um, Local Initial Support Corporation, where they were one of the uh, national organizations that honed in to help housing authorities at that time I had to go to HUD I said I told them what my idea was and they just kind of looked at me and I think the ongoing joke even today with some folks is that you really know how to talk yourself out of a job don't you you know and so but it wasn't so much as what's in it for Demetria but it was more so how can we take this opportunity to build Back the way we we're supposed to, and help the people who have been affected by this major disaster. And so, after doing that, and then having to go to both local council to get permission. One of the things that the lessons that I've learned in this in this business is when you want the support of the local government, the support of the community stakeholders, you don't backdoor anything. You go to them in the beginning and pitch the ideas that you have and sit down with them and and get their input. And so, after all of that, everybody agreed to the idea. I no longer had a job because the housing authorities came together, but not until you know I led the creation of a, a one stop housing resource center that is still. Going strong today. And it's so good to know that, you know, something like that that I led, which, you know, we received national attention on that. The Assistant Secretary of HUD at the time, Orlando Cabrera, came down along with other HUD officials, um, the state HUD officials, and of course, you know, national funders who played a part in getting the One Stop Resource uh, Center up and going. But that was the beginning of. Bring in education to not just homeowners, but to residents, whether they rented or owned a home, making sure that they had the resources that they need to begin planning to move forward and building back their lives as well as the homes that they lived in.
0: One of the things that I appreciate about you is that you're such a strong advocate in bringing outside firms to come in and do exactly what you just explained, um, that you leverage public housing authorities with private companies and federal resources and you try to make this full comprehensive approach to problem solving and what you just explained with this innovative education center or this innovative you know housing resource center is that you brought in multiple people into the discussion about how to repair the housing how to better prepare people for home or home ownership and i know this is still taking place in a lot of what you're doing in development and you actually have a role now within bgc that is working toward radically changing the face mm-hmm. of affordable housing mm-hmm. And, you know, before we go and, you know, explain, because you and your team are doing such an exciting thing here in the face of housing, I I want to explain for those who are listening to this podcast, I want to explain, because I think in order to understand what innovative things you're doing, we have to sort of understand why is there such a problem moving affordable housing forward? Why is it hard for funding to be in place at appropriate levels? Also, you know, why is there such a community perception problem with this? So, you know, like walk us through here and and help explain that to um, many of us. When we work in affordable housing, we get it. But sometimes there's this community pressure or community perception. So let's talk through this for a minute.
1: That it's, it's, it's never been, I'm going to say a sexy conversation to mm-hmm. have within communities because you're talking about, mostly you're talking about people who live in poverty. You're talking about people who are living in, in subsidized housing. That's also called affordable housing. You're oh. also talking about people who are in the workforce. Right. And, and some people call it the working poor Some people just call it the workforce. and. That's what's so important about our job is that we have to educate the community, those who don't understand what affordable housing is, and not to confuse it with, for example, people sometimes introduce affordable housing as subsidized housing. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Subsidized housing. Ah, well, let's see. The White House is subsidized. The governor's mansion is subsidized, you know. Good so, points. Good yeah, points. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, so when I I always tell people if you if you leave in introducing affordable housing as subsidized housing, help the people understand what subsidized housing is, and use those types of comparison to help people to understand and minimize that perception of affordable housing. And we in the public housing industry over time have done so well helping the communities that we serve to understand public housing now. I know in Toledo, Ohio at LMHA, I could not stand the word, the project, and I I made it known out loud, even in interviews, that I did not like that word, the projects, because if we're going to get rid of this stigma, this community perception, then we need to change that name. Now, I'm not trying to change history. That's not what we want to do. But what we need to do is in order to change the community's perception, the people who live in uh, subsidized housing, are people who do go to work every day, people who work hard at what they do and, and work very hard to have what they have. you know. And I always say one bad apple spoils a bunch and that then there you go, the community perception is there. And so our work um, over the years has been very hard and very challenging in changing that community perception around affordable housing. What has happened is we've seen people become more accepting within the community. If a housing authority uh, was getting ready to build housing within a community, the communication around that, um, having conversations within the community, with the residents, and even with the local government, bringing everyone together to understand the type of housing that's going to be taking place. And that's something that um, I haven't seen in early years of my career That I see today and one of the things that I make sure that I, I have done whenever I have led in that space is bringing everyone to the table and sharing and communicating what we're doing and why we're doing it and who we're doing it for
0: that's creating community. So one of the things that I see happening recently is a trend with developers to actually blend a lot of market rate, you know, a lot of commercial Mm -hmm. types of amenities, first floor grocery stores, or they're they're taking more of a blended approach to how they Mm -hmm. develop market rate, affordable housing, lots of property amenities. And so I do believe that as we've brought in new affordable housing within communities, we've actually tried to be a little more responsive to not just the community, but the people who are living there. So you're right. There is a changing community perception, but there's still a long way to go Mm -hmm. in how that is accepted within communities. So why is there this continual push and pull to fund affordable housing to fund whether it's you know a section 8 voucher or whether it is any kind of increment financing to build you know new affordable housing
1: that has been one of my biggest frustration throughout my career in watching funding decrease um, especially in the public housing industry every year we see the gap in affordable housing increase. We hear every year and we are a part of the fight to uh, hold on to the funding that we do have. And the funding that we do have, we have to use it to spread it out across the programs that we have and address the backlog that we have. I believe over time we have seen $26 billion in a backlog on repairs for public housing. That number has grown over the years, and it's not going anywhere, which is why HUD has created programs uh, like the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program that we call RAD. That has forced housing authorities and HUD to look at, we can't fund housing authorities, all the housing authorities across the country. We cannot fund their backlog of repairs nor can we continue to go in the direction that we're going and still impose regulatory requirements on housing authorities and how they operate. You know, now housing authorities have, you know, over the years have been introduced to leveraging public and private resources to help with those repairs. The rental assistance demonstration program will allow housing authorities to go to a rental assistance platform, project-based voucher program and project-based rental assistance program, Um, but more on the project-based voucher side. It allows housing authorities to operate like a private business and use their assets to generate the revenue that they need to repair those units that are in desperate need of repair. But what's happened over the years, Katie, that I've seen is that we are having to change the way we do business. We're having to operate like a private business. But what we've also seen is the funding sources that we were not allowed to play in in that space of another funding source, we are now able to leverage um, simply because we figured out, you know, or they figured out that, you know what, in order for an individual to be in good health or at least to promote good health is they have to have good quality, decent and sanitary housing, you know, to live in. And how does this work? That's called healthy housing. And people who live in good quality housing, it brings stability. It's the foundation for having good health, children being able to focus on getting a good education because they have a place to lay their head and it creates that stability. You know. But you talk about developing those communities of mixed income communities. We have seen concentrated poverty for many, many years, but by mixing or leveraging public and private resources, we're able to create those communities that once didn't have grocery stores, um, which is why we've seen the food deserts within certain communities uh, within our cities. And so with leveraging public and private resources, we've been able to bring the wraparound support, bring the amenities like the grocery and retail to wherever we build affordable housing. And so although it's been a challenge over the years, housing authorities are doing better about bringing in the partnerships to help them to leverage the funding sources that they need to create those communities, but also to bring in that expertise in and to the table where housing authorities normally wouldn't be able to have that type of expertise. And so housing authorities don't always have to be the owner or the lead in developing that affordable housing, but just being a part of developing the type of housing that's needed. It's for individuals who are at the lowest of their income brackets or near homelessness. And, but that's not meant for them to stay there forever. And so we always want to look at creating communities or affordable housing where they can go from public housing and that subsidized housing over here. And once they are able to gain employment through education, training, get a job, they can move to another form of affordable housing.
0: We've talked about strategic design, leveraging funding, and we've mentioned community integration, which leads to stable housing. Now one piece I'd like to talk about is leadership. Coming up in part two of my discussion with Demetria Simpson, the vice president of development at BGC Advantage, Demetria tells us how she characterizes her leadership style.
1: I am an empowerer. I empower people, making sure that they have the tools and the resources they need to do their jobs effectively.
0: Thanks for listening to Changemakers with Katie Gore. To find out more about Katie, go to quadel.com. That's Q-U-A-D-E-L.com. This has been a production of Forbes Books Radio.